We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show brought to you on Edge Radio 99.3 FM from Hobart, Tasmania. Our listeners would know that we unpack a new, interesting science topic each week with local experts in Tasmania. And we try and do something that's kind of distinctive to Tasmania. But we're going to be talking today about some really exciting research that's essentially gone across the state, if not not the state, and then also onto the mainland, and then even, I think, further afield. So I'm pretty excited. I'm joined in the studio with Penelope, or Penny Jones, and Lachlan Taggart, or Lockie. So we've got two abbreviated names. That's great. Uh, I do love the Australians do that. It's like, <laughs> it's totally Makes fair life game. So much simpler. Yeah. Mm. I wish I could do that with a funky name like Neve. But all the Australian replacements that I've had have been like Nevos or Nevo. Or, <laughs> so they don't really actually work to solve my problems. But um, could you briefly introduce yourself, Penny? Sure. So my, um, my background is actually not in medical research at all, but I'm very much enjoying working at Menzies. So I started out my research career in paleoecology, which is the study of past environments, so the ecology of past environments, basically. Um, And I used to use fossil pollen, which can survive in places like peat bogs for tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. Um, I used to use that to reconstruct vegetation and climate change in the past. So I was really, really interested in past environments and how humans um, interacted with those past landscapes. So that's where I started my research career. But who knew that pollen counting and pollen identification is a transferable skill? (laughs) I gotta say, if somebody if I met somebody at like a networking event and they told me that, I'd be like, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) But it really is because yes, after I I did my PhD in in archaeology, um, I was wanting to come back to Tassie, which is where I'm from, and was asking around about postdocs and someone said oh I should go and talk to David Bowman he needs a pollen person by this stage I hadn't looked at pollen for about 10 years I was like sure I can remember what that looks like (laughs) Um, so yes I landed working for the aerator project which we can talk more about later but the aerator project is um, a project that was cooked up between the Menzies and biological sciences to support people with allergies and asthma across Tasmania by providing information on air quality and pollen yeah, who knew Penny the Pollen Counter? Penny that's the right. Pollen Person. That's I love right. That. I yeah. love that. I'm yeah. like, that's going to stick now. Yeah. I'm like, every time I see you in the TV, I'm like, Penny the Pollen Person. <laughs> that's me. That's me. That's right. So look, you know. Yeah, and we, then. We love liberations in science. We do. <laughs> yeah. So, Lockie, a little bit about you as well. How did you get into science? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I grew up in country Victoria and decided from a young age that I was definitely going to study some sort of science. Uh, and then I did my bachelor's of biomedicine at the University of Melbourne, hoping to learn a little bit more about what I could do in science as a career, maybe thinking medicine or something like that, but really got sidetracked by studying a couple of subjects related to plant science and loved them so much. Then uh, from that, I decided to go and do a master's of science rather than go on and do some sort of vocational field. Um, and as soon as I remember one week into studying my master's of science, I remember thinking that this is the best thing ever and deciding that I wanted to pursue research for the rest of my life. Uh, I finished that and I was looking at a really cool project also related to pollen and uh, human health, in particular hay fever in Melbourne. Uh, I was there during the 2016 Melbourne Thunderstorm Asthma event uh, and our 
research got a lot of publicity, which was really cool. Um, and then from there, I uh, decided to pursue a PhD and a really cool project came up with the aerator group down here, uh, supervised by Penny and uh, Faye Johnson, also from the aerator group. And I decided to come down and, and study that. So swapped around a little bit from medical science to plant science, back to medical science again. Um, but yeah. So would you two say that there's like a little bit of ecology and plant science mixed in with human health or medical research in what you're doing? Absolutely, yes. And in fact, I mean, my, um, as I said, both of our backgrounds really is in Mm. botany and ecology and and things like that. And when I actually first started the job that I'm essentially doing now, I was actually um, located in the School of Biological Sciences and that's just really from... I'm funded by Menzies now and I do it with my health. But, you know, like I think really what I do could validly sit in either Yeah, that's really it's, cool. It's, yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole load of crossover and lots of skills and knowledge are relevant to many different fields. Mm. Yeah, I think interdisciplinary yeah. science is becoming more and more important because, mm. I mean, our health doesn't exist in this void where all mm. we can look at is health because it's yeah. – impacted by everything around mm, us absolutely. so you know it makes sense that we need people who are yeah. sitting in two camps that's right mm. and it also actually really even have to mix in particularly the sort of stuff that i've been doing with pollen forecasting kind of um climate and atmospheric modeling and all sorts of other fire ecology yeah kind of whacking everything else yeah why not yeah give it the whole kitchen sink that's right <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be covering um a lot about really the under pinning aspects of the aerator app which mm-hmm. is a huge big cool project that i'm very excited yeah. to talk about and we're going to be looking at things like what is an allergy or what is asthma and how are these things diagnosed and how does it relate to this really awesome app that started here in tassie Listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're with Penny Jones and Lockie Teggart. Teagart, actually. Teagart. Yeah, sorry, there's there we go. No, I'm glad. <laughs> um, so, we're going to talk a little bit about essentially pollen and how they affect our health. Mm-hmm. So, Penny, what is pollen? Well, so the, the best analogy for pollen is actually that it's basically plant sperm. It's not quite exactly the same as a male sperm cell, but it's pretty close. So, um, Plants have um, male and female um, cells that have to meet to create an egg, just like um, in, in animals. Um, and yeah, as I said, pollen is the male, um, male gametophyte, so it carries the male, male portion of the DNA, if you like. And um, it's actually a very cool cell, so it's just a single cell. Um, it's actually a cell that has two nuclei, which I didn't know before mm-hmm. doing any of this That's stuff. That's pretty so, yes, cool. And one of the nuclei, um, so the pollen gets transported either by the in, an insect or a bat or something like that, or by the wind. Um, and that's quite important when it comes to allergies too, for various reasons. To take it back to really basic science, yes. though, nuclei or a nucleus is where all the genetic information is contained yes. within part of a yes, cell. Isn't it? That's so it's right. pretty cool because I thought all cells could only have one mm, nucleus, mm. but in fact, pollen has two pollen nuclei. Pollen is pretty cool. But then because um, it's spread, it can't go it around. It carries its little packet of DNA and it carries it to another flower. So yeah, so pollen, so if you can imagine a, a flower um, has... Yeah, if you can imagine a daisy, the daisy's kind of got yellow bits all in the middle of it, and that becomes yellow dust, if you like. That yellow dust is the pollen. So it sits at the end of the, the anthers or the, the stalks in the middle of the flower. And that pollen gets carried from one flower to another, and when it lands on the other flower, one of the nuclei becomes what's called a pollen tube, and 
buries itself down to um, into the into the other flower, the female flower, and um, build a tube to the ovary part of the flower, and then the other nucleus goes down the tube and fertilizes um, the female flower, and and um, yeah. That's pretty cool. A new plant begins. A new plant yes. begins. It's a little bit more romantic, really, than the whole uh, human way of procreation, yeah, if well, you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems far more hygienic. Yes. <laughs> so there you go. That's what pollen is. And the reason why there's pollen blowing around in the air and causing us problems at some point is because, as I said, some plants um, use the wind to um, get their, their DNA from one plant to another and get... get it's their equivalent of going to a bar. Pretty much, that's right. And pine pollen, pine pollen's very cool. Pine pollen looks a bit like Mickey Mouse and it has these air sacs on it, um, which is like Mickey Mouse's ears. And that's because pine pollen is one of those ones designed to be transported by the wind and it can get so far, it can get right up into the jet stream in the atmosphere and it can get all the way to Antarctica. So it can fly for hundreds of kilometres. That is very so, cool. Pollen is cool. Pollen is cool. Look, you know, that's an endless, endless. So because... A lot of pollen from different types of plant species mm. is circulating in the wind and mm. stuff. Is that how it then can a high pollen count can cause us to get a bit sniffly or have an adverse reaction? Yeah, to it? pretty much. So, um, yeah, particularly, yeah, it's November at the moment. So at the moment we're sort of in the middle of high high pollen season, and yeah, absolutely, there's lots of pollen swirling around. Plants are doing their reproducing thing, and. For some people, for about 25% of people in Tasmania, um, that can cause them to get hay fever, um, which is what happens when your body, you know, and some people, their bodies learn to essentially misidentify pollen as a threat and then the body mounts an immune system, immune system rather, an immune response rather, immune response to the pollen, um, which actually isn't really going to do you any harm at all but your body decides it is mounts mounts an immune response and it's actually that immune response which releases things called histamine so you know how you take an antihistamine when you have hay fever so that's actually what it's actually the body's response that's causing you problems rather than the pollen itself yeah it's one of the isn't a histamine one of the innate cells so you have your innate immunity that you're born Mm -hmm. with and that has like this is really going to be taking back to like French terminology <laughs> that I swear I only learned within a week in panic before the exam, yeah. where there's like seven or eight key core kind of cells or mm-hmm. types of cells as part of your innate immunity, mm-hmm. and histamine is one of them. But I always remember thinking that that was funny that actually hay fever isn't because of the pollen, it's because yeah. of you and your body. Yeah, pretty much. Yes, so like when people get body's... really annoyed That's and they're right. like, oh, high pollen, and they're like really angry at the like plants. They know it's your mast cells. Your <laughs> <laughs> like it's actually you and your yeah. immune system. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Stop overreacting. Yeah. If only you could relax and not overreact. Gosh. I'm sorry if that is offensive to anybody with hay fever. I myself am a very bad hay fever sufferer. And I just like to have a good moan usually about it. And that recently I've been like, well, it's my fault. Oh. So is what is is this linked to like what an allergy is? Is essentially when our immune system mm. perceives something that many people, it's foreign in some mm-hmm. way to our body, yeah. and many people don't have an adverse response. Yeah. To it, Absolutely. Right. That's that's pretty much your definition of allergy. Yeah, is that um, something from the environment enters the body, which is harmless to most people, but your body, for whatever reason, decides it's a threat, mounts an immune response. Technically, your mast cells um, release the histamine, and then yeah, you kind of have your allergic allergic responses, if you like. The symptoms sort of come from from there. 
But I was wondering if you could tell me what asthma is, because asthma yeah. is different to an allergy, but it can be affected adversely by yeah, it things can like be, smoke and It can be pollen. very, and it can be related. So asthma, as I said, asthma isn't hay fever, and um, it's basically it's a condition that affects the the breathing, the tubes that lead down to our lungs, and the those. Um, the airways to the lungs um, narrow and become narrower. And so the symptoms of asthma include things like wheezing, um, tightness in the chest and coughing. So it's not, not your classic kind of, you know, itchy eyes and runny nose and things like that. So asthma isn't always um, linked to allergies, but it can be. There's a, a broad distinction in asthma basically between allergic asthma, um, which can be exacerbated or triggered by things like pollen or dust or things like that. And there's also non-allergic asthma, um, which, which isn't. And... Some people have kind of one or the other. Some people, I think, can have both kind of. So asthma is a bit – asthma and its link to to allergies is, is certainly there, but it's not quite, you know, cut and, oh, okay. cut and dried. So it's, and all, you know, it's a little bit of a case-by-case basis for people with asthma. That's really interesting. So what are kind of some of the public health implications of allergies, asthma, and pollen? Well, there's lots, really, um, particularly when you kind of scale it up to, um, just because so much of the population is affected. As I think um, I said before, about 25% of people have hay fever in Tassie, um, about 10% have asthma. And in terms of the, the public health implications, um, even just with allergies, it can be sort of tempting. I think sometimes think of hay fever, oh, it's just a sniffle, what are you complaining about? But actually, for a lot of people, it really significantly affects their the energy levels, like their sleep, has been shown, for example, like children who have hay fever do worse in exams. People are much less productive at work. Um, quite a lot of people end up taking days off. So, you know, it does have quite serious implications. And it goes to show it's a very significant public health implication. Mm, mm. So in just a moment, we'll be talking about how we diagnose certain allergies and asthma and how they are managed with that lucky. Mm. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. We're talking about allergies and pollen today. So it's very topical given the time of year. And we're joined with Lockie. How are you doing? Very good. Well, I've got a little bit of hay fever today. but Really? Yeah. yeah. A little bit uh, nasally or tickly? Yes, a little bit of sneezing, a bit of runny eye. Runny nose and itchy eyes. The itchy eyes is what bugs me the most. The worst. Yeah, it it really is. So we've been talking a little bit about pollen and allergies and how they're intertwined. But you know, many of us would have hay fever, but never diagnose that. Do you? Mm -hmm. Can you actually get hay fever diagnosed as a condition that is recognised? Yeah, you can. So um, pretty much the steps that you would take if you wanted to get your hay fever diagnosed is you notice it in yourself. So that would be the first thing and. The thing about that makes hay fever unique from other types of allergies is that it's usually, we call it a seasonal disease. So it is most prominent when there is the most amount of trigger in the air and that trigger being pollen. And um, we know that spring is when a lot of flowers like to bloom and send their pollen out into the air. So this is usually when people get their most the most hay fever symptoms. So let's say you've been sneezing a lot in the spring and you want to go get get checked out and see whether it is hay fever or not. You go into the doctor and a lot of GPs can do this themselves, but they might actually refer you to a doctor called an allergist or a clinical immunologist. Um, and their first their first test is usually like a survey, checking when you've got symptoms and stuff like that. But the, the main experiment kind of thing that they do is called a skin prick test. 
So pretty much what that is, is they will they'll take your, your forearm or sometimes your back and they will put little drops of water on there. And these drops of water have uh, pollen allergens in them. So it's like, we call it a pollen extract. And there are usually about 20 different pollens that they will test for, different ones that can cause hay fever. They'll put them onto your skin in little drops and then with a little pin, they break the surface of the skin and allow that allergen to seep into your blood. Uh, and then if you are allergic or if you you could have hay fever to that individual allergen, it'll come up in a little uh, red lump, which we call a, a wheel, W-H-E-A-L. Um, and it's red and it's itchy. And then the doctor can go through and they can say which types of pollen you're allergic to. And that would diagnose you as, that would sort of signify you having an allergy to that plant. And you could say that that could be a plant that causes you hay fever. So then, like, if you knew that there was really high pollen count yes. of that specific type, you would maybe take steps to exactly, yeah, yeah. mitigate against that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Does it hurt? Have you had it done? I have had it done, yeah. It uh, doesn't hurt, but it is incredibly itchy. So when one time, I've had it done twice because of a problem. <laughs> um, but the second time that I had it, it took nearly three days for the wheels to go down. But for most people, it goes down within an hour or something yeah. like that. So I just had big red lumps on my arm for a couple of days. That would drive me crazy because I've never had itchy. that done. But, like, I get really bad reactions to, um, to mosquito bites, like mm. really bad. It swells up, like, huge, and it's just incredibly itchy for, like, I swear, like a five-centimeter diameter around the actual bite. Whoa. And I'm just like, I was just going to gouge it out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I would hate that. That sounds really – but it's, I always, like, I think I would – the suspense of the mm. little skin prick would probably be like, do it quickly, please. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the skin prick itself barely hurts. It's, it's a, a little scratchy, but, anything, but yeah. yeah, it's it's a very minimally invasive technique. It's not going to hurt anyone. So is this similar to some of the like food allergy testing they can do as well? Because I think I've heard similar so. things with patch testing. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so does this really help develop like a management plan for allergies? Yeah, so I, I think I hinted at it before, but... Uh, your hay fever is usually specific to you and it depends on what types of pollen you're allergic to. So um, everyone will be allergic mm. to different things and it, and it depends on the time of year when that pollen is heavy. But your management can be specific to the types of pollen that you're allergic to. So um, usually the first thing that your doctor will say is to start taking antihistamines whenever you feel like you might have symptoms or when you predict, mm. predict that there will be high levels of pollen in the air. Um, but then usually you can go on to try to avoid when there's going to be high levels of pollen in the air. So you can choose to stay inside. You could choose to put your air conditioner on to filter the air that's going into your house. You could um, take the day off school. You could take the day off work, whatever you feel like. So there's avoidance. But then another type of treatment is a more long-term option and it's called desensitization therapy. So um, the word desensitization comes from um, sensitized so when you are allergic to something you say that you're sensitized to it and this is a therapy that's designed to make you no longer be sensitive to that thing you're allergic to so um, it's a little bit like a skin prick test in that you have an extract of the allergen but the doctor will routinely expose you to it either via an injection or a little pill that goes underneath your tongue and it's meant to, over time, slowly teach your immune system to no longer overreact to that uh, individual stimulus. So it is, um, in that way, desensitizing. So each time you are exposed to it, have a little bit of a reaction, but it's meant to teach you to become 
less sensitive to it over time. So has there been many studies that look at the efficacy of that approach or even like the cost effectiveness of it? Like, Because w- I've never heard of that before. So, really? Oh. Yeah, so I'm kind of like, why is everyone not doing that rather than just taking antihistamines? Yeah, well, it, it is a more expensive option. It's time-consuming. Uh, it I, I couldn't quote studies to you, but it does... Um, it does work in a lot of people. Um, I've had it myself, but it didn't, it didn't work for me, unfortunately. But for a lot of people, it does, uh, particularly if it is very closely monitored by your allergist and stuff like that. So, yeah, it definitely is an option, but it is tricky to get right because yeah. it is specific to the plant that you're allergic to. And then obviously, if it doesn't work, but you're well-informed of what types of pollen particularly um, irritates you or that you're sensitive to, you can use the other strategies that you mentioned, like being proactive by taking antihistamine or Mm. um, avoidance, which brings us nicely into the Aerator app, which we'll be talking to Penny about in just a moment. We're going to be talking about a really innovative project that I really enjoy because it's app-based technology helping improve health and it's from Tasmania so what could get better really well absolutely yeah. <laughs> um, so Penny could you tell me a little bit about the Aerator app I certainly can so Aerator is fantastic but that's the most it important is. thing your listeners should know um, and it's also free um, and you so should download it you should download it that's right so and also the other important thing particularly if people are thinking of downloading it is to note so Aerator um, it's not A E R O T O R like an aerator in a fish tank. It's A I R R A T E R like air and rater. So ah, just, there we just, go. Yeah, not that's not always clear if you just yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, anyway, so aerator was developed in 2015 here at UTAS. Um, so David Bowman, who's in biological sciences or natural sciences, is now, and Faye Johnson here at Menzies um, co-led a grant. Uh, they got funded by Synthity, Um which was a big grant for developing real-time technology solutions and stuff. Anyway, to develop Aerator, and so it was born in 2015, and it's an app that is designed to help people with allergies and asthma or any other condition, for that matter, that's affected by the the environment to be more become more aware of their environment and to use that information to help them better manage their health. So yeah, so you guys collect like a heap of environmental conditions and parameters. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we get weather data that just comes from the Bureau of Meteorology. So we suck in the weather data. In Tassie, we're actually really lucky. We've got a fantastic air quality monitoring network for um, particulate pollution, which is mostly in Tasmania from smoke, so either wood smoke or bushfire smoke, things like that. So where do we get that from? Uh, so the Environment Protection Authority actually have 35 um, monitors scattered around Tasmania, which is fantastic. Most other states only have a handful in just in the capital city. So yeah, Tasmania wow. is really the only place in Australia at the moment that has its regional areas served really well too. And that will tell us like the particulate matter, so like yeah. what density of Absolutely. particulate like particles yes. of pollution. I mean the air. Are yes, yeah. that's right. So yeah. micrograms of particulate matter per cubic meter to be yeah. precise. Yes. PC PM two point five. That's the one. Is the, the jargon I was trying to avoid PM2. using that, but they PM two point five. Yes, on the ABC and everything. Yeah, PM two point five. So, well, if people are listening to that and wondering, PM is just particulate matter, and two point five means two point five microns in diameter or less, and so that means it's a fine fraction, and that's important because that the coarser fraction is called PM ten, um, and that that can irritate us as well but it's pm 2.5 that's really important from a health perspective because that can really get penetrate very deep into the lungs and cause 
nasty things to happen. Yeah, you can listen mm. to our very first episode with Faye Johnston if you want to about more of that. Absolutely. And it's on our website. Yes. So there you go. Tonight, if you're right. interested in bushfire season to learn more. But back mm. to aerator. So you get yes. smoke quality. From... You get smoke, you get weather, and you get pollen. And how do you get pollen? So I think it's really cool. Yes, it is pollen. quite cool. Um, although it's still quite 1950s, actually, which is interesting. <laughs> um, so so we have um, so we, we do the pollen monitoring ourselves. Um, we have a fantastic team of pollen counters. And, pollen um, people. Pollen people, that's right. Um, <laughs> we've got a couple of teams. We've got a team in Hobart and a team in Launceston, and they do literally um, sit down and look under a microscope at a microscope slide and count the number of different types of pollen grains that they can see. So we have these machines, um, um, which are they're technically called Hearst-type traps, but as I said, they're really, it's, it's still the gold standard for pollen monitoring around the world, but they're really just these big things that... They suck in air at 10 litres per minute and um, you have a microscope slide sitting behind an air inlet, a narrow air inlet, and it has sticky stuff on it. And so the air gets sucked onto the microscope slide and the pollen and everything else in the air sticks to the slide. Um, the slide moves very slowly over 24 hours. So at the end of the day, you come along, you get your microscope slide out of the trap and that's your 24-hour sample of pollen. So does that mean that any of the kind of analysis of pollen is kind of the pollen for yesterday it does it yeah. does indeed which That's is interesting yes it is one of the slight drawbacks in the way that we have to do it at the moment ultimately of course it'd be really great if we could get real-time information which you know for um like the air quality monitors for example they are able to actually process that in essentially real time so you get a reading every 10 minutes whereas so i'm sure if anybody wants like a new big tech development thing that's to do, right. you can figure out how to get real time, real -time that's right there are lots of people working on it. every time i give a talk absolutely every time someone sticks up at their hand and says so why hasn't anyone invented automated <laughs> pollen counting yet people are working on it but it's it's obviously easier said than done for various reasons um yeah there is there's a reasonably convincing kind of couple of Technology is coming out of Switzerland, but at the moment they cost, they're still kind of very much early stages. So, you know, take so on at your own risk kind of thing. And they cost about 250,000 euros. So they're not really accessible yet. I reckon in five years time we'll have automated pollen. Yeah. So then people also interact with this environmental mm. information yes. by they can log their symptoms. They absolutely can log their symptoms. Yes. And um, then over time, would you, but so if you are like, oh, I've got really itchy eyes today and I'm mm. a bit sniffly and my throat's a bit tickling, you can go in and log that. Mm. And then the more you do that, will the app give you some, will you end up getting a fuller picture of like you what will. makes you Yeah, reactive? yeah. Um, so over time, so there is a, a statistical model in the app, so if you log enough symptoms, so I think it's about at least 50 you need to log because obviously like it, it's quite complicated handling all these different types of environmental data, so you do need to log quite a few symptoms before you can get a model. But yeah, um, it'll start to develop a picture of what triggers your um, what triggers your symptoms. So it sounds like it's really beneficial to get this symptom logging and... Mm -hmm the um, input of that with the environmental data would be really, really powerful. So has there been any exciting preliminary findings? Mm, absolutely. So we're about to publish a paper on the first three years of symptom data from Tasmania, um, looking at, so that, that population scale, what people in Tasmania are, are getting allergy or asthma symptoms in response to. And we found, you know, what you'd expect. So grass pollen, birch pollen, um, hot air, cold air, um, things like that. But we also found a couple of pollen types that aren't normally thought of as the, the usual suspects. So oh, um, Myrtaceae pollen, which is a eucalypt family, which there there are some hints from elsewhere that that that's, can be an allergy and asthma trigger, but it's still not really a commonly kind of thought of allergen. 
and also another one called Dodonia, which is a, a native bush that again is not normally thought of as an allergy trigger at all really so so what are the implications of those findings yeah well i suppose that one of the main things is actually that they're not really in the suite of things so if you go to the doctor to get diagnosed an allergy it's probably not something your doctor would think of testing for and in the case of some of the particularly native pollen types you actually can't necessarily test for because all of the skin prick tests and stuff are made in the northern hemisphere and mm. it's quite eurocentric we think they're really exciting results, but they are from they're from an app, so it's you know it's an uncontrolled sort of study, and so we're like, okay, well, can we kind of find some way to ground truth these results, if you like? And that's um, how we we landed on the the Witch Pollen Project, which we we got funded by the the Tasmanian Community Fund, gave us some some money to to run a very exciting project, um, which is really trying to um, use immunology, um, an exciting new immunological method to um, ground truth that essentially and test which pollen types exactly people in, in Tassie are responding to. That's awesome. Mm. Sounds really exciting. That leads mm. us nicely into Absolutely. PhD work. Mm. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. We've been talking about allergies and pollen and with Lockie earlier we talked a little bit about how we diagnose an allergy and uh, we've just heard from Penny that we found out some really interesting data using the Aerator app that some native plants were triggering potentially allergy responses in the population but that it was a little bit surprising which you know you can't expect because it's really individual but I suppose I would have thought that maybe some native plants people wouldn't respond quite so badly to them. So what is the witch pollen project that was born out of this really interesting finding? Yeah, cool. So again, the witch pollen project, which was generously funded by the Tasmanian Community Fund, is a, a clinical project. So it's something where we actually got to work with individual people, which was really cool. So we recruited a bunch, uh, about 70 uh, Hobart-based hay fever sufferers. We got them to come into our clinic here at the Menzies and we took... Um, a couple of different samples from them. So we took a blood sample. I'll come back to that in a sec. We also did some skin prick testing. So again, we, we tested their sensitivity to known allergenic pollen types that I spoke about before. Um, and we also asked them to record their daily symptoms for a year using the Aerator app. Uh, so that means that we can we have like a good baseline for our current understanding of what they might be allergic to based on that. Um, I mentioned we took some blood. So blood is really cool because it has these. Well, you know, it's 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 a it comes from our body. There's a whole different type of. It gives like a little window into what our cells are doing beneath the surface of our skin, really, and like it can. We, we've got an episode coming up where we're going to talk about how it shows what proteins are being actively transcribed and nice. essentially how we're responding to our environment, like uh-huh. which we don't really think. I don't, I don't often think of our bodies as really active and transient mm. things. We're like, oh no, I'm just me, and that's it. But actually, we're uh-huh. changing on a cellular level all the time, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. It's so, so interesting. getting blood is actually really cool because yeah. you can look at all of these things in really interesting ways. So you're using blood in like, are you using it to like expose it to some allergens? Or? Kind of. So uh, blood has got a lot of different things in it. One of those things that we're particularly interested in is antibodies. Yeah. You know, antibody, antibody. So an antibody isn't that when you create a protein that's a response to like uh, an, like a, a foreign 
thing. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty much, if there's yeah. a foreign thing enters your body, then your immune system goes, ah, what mm-hmm. the hell is this? Mm-hmm. And it fights it, gives some karate chops, and then <laughs> all of a sudden it's leveled up and it's like, totally. when you come back, I'm going to be able to respond to you way quicker. Exactly, yeah, pretty much. So uh, the cool thing about antibodies is that they are like really, really, really specific to the thing that you're allergic to. So um, you and I have got millions of different antibodies that could stick to any sort of different thing. So as a hay fever sufferer, my blood probably has antibodies to grass pollen, birch pollen, fungal spores, cats, all those sort of things that I'm allergic to. Um, And we're going to kind of like harness that capability in this assay. So this assay is called a assay, meaning like a, a screening tool um, it's called the halogen immunoassay I, I say that wrong i should say it as a halogen mm-hmm. immunoassay i'll explain why in a second so we take the patient's blood we also have for every patient we have an air filter that has pollen grains and fungal spores in it uh, that we take from the air and then we use those antibodies in the patient's blood to stick to the filters with the pollen grains and the fungal spores in them and because uh, antibodies are specific to the thing that you're allergic to and they are sticky, they stick to the thing that you might be allergic to on that filter and then it makes like a, a ring around that particular pollen grain. Which ah, so like the halo. Halo, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, I always get, because it looks like, the word looks very obviously like halogen because mm-hmm. it's spelled the same way, but yeah. it means halo generating. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. It is kind of cool. Anyway, so we can uh, then look at that particular filter underneath the microscope and based on which pollen or fungal spores have a halo around them, we know that that particular person is allergic to that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so then really potentially, cool. like, if we had a bank of these, could we, rather than having to do the skin prick test, could we take somebody's blood sample and work out what they're allergic to? Well, like, you can. That's the, the, another method of testing a person's al- diagnosing allergies in a person is to determine what antibodies they have in their blood. Um, but again, that is only limited to things that we know are allergens previously. So uh, we can't detect for those native plants that Penny was talking about before, the, the hot bush and the, the eucalyptus species and the cypresses. So another question as well. If you're doing this based in Hobart and you're asking people to track it over the year, I'd imagine there's a bit of spread across Tasmania in terms of the types of pollen or maybe how sensitive people are to different types of pollen. Mm-hmm. Um, do you suspect that that would be the case? And would you have to like redo this experiment with people based in Launceston or on the West Coast? Well, we know that the pollen grains are, uh, the pollen grains are pretty consistent across Tasmania. Oh, there you so, go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's usually the same around Tasmania. We would say that the same things are present, but in different proportions. And it really depends on the land use around the particular area. So, um, our Hobart pollen trap, we've got one on the eastern shore and one in Sandy Bay, the university campus. So, we see a lot of um, native pollen types from the mountain, or uh, we might see some grass from nearby farmlands and stuff like that. Different in Launceston. Launceston's more so surrounded by. Uh, farmland so we'd see more farm associated taxa like ryegrass and stuff like that so um, the findings are consistent in that we can prove that all of these things are allergens or not that's really um, interesting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So um, you recently received a very prestigious scholarship, the Fulbright Scholarship. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> what are you going to go to America to do and who are you going to visit? Yeah, so we have a collaborator over in the 
US Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, which is a government uh, organization of preventing and controlling diseases. Uh, the uh, collaborator's name is Dr. Brett Green. He's an aerobiologist. Oh, wow, cool. Is, yeah, which is a super Seems cool. relevant. Totally, totally. So <laughs> aerobiology is the field that we Penny and I study, looking at how living things in the air, like pollen grains and fungal spores, affect people's health. So um, he's the expert in that, and he's got a lab set up over there. He's also the person that invented the, the HIA, the halogen, halogen immunoassay technique. So he will be able to teach us how to use this method That's amazing. and to adapt it to what we want to do. So, so it sounds like you're going to learn some really great skills. How long yeah, are you going for? 10 whole months. Oh, wow. It's like nearly a year. Pretty That's much. incredible. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. So that'll be like almost a whole year out of your PhD where you'll be mm-hmm. based in America to yes. do that. Yes, pretty much. That's yeah. absolutely fantastic. When do you go? I leave in August next year. So That's so exciting. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm over the Never been to America before. So we'll That's awesome. Well, wishing you all the best for your trip to America thank and you. for the rest of your research. And thank you for coming on to talk to us about Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thanks, Nick. Awesome. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. And as always, get in touch with us on social media. We'd love to have your feedback and any suggestions for future shows. Um, and of course, just get in touch with us if you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much, folks.